This is Doug Scheiding of Rogue Cookers, baseball fan and barbecue world champion. You are listening to the Baseball and Barbecue Show with Lynn and Jeff. Let's play ball. Baseball and BBQ Studios in Wanto and Belmore, New York. This is episode number 153 of Baseball and BBQ. Len, what does the BBQ stand for? Barbecue. And who are you? I am perplexed, confused, angry, and I'm not going to take it anymore. I am Leonard Hollywood Aberman. And wow. <laughs> The studios of Wanta and Belmore, that is a big-ass studio, Jeff. And Len, just... who am I? <laughs> you are Jeff Cohen. <laughs> Thank you very much. Mad ranter. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our podcast. Leonard, how are you? Oh, Jeff, I'm, I'm, I'm still recovering from our recent road trip. Oh. More information on that shortly. Okay. And also... We're going to, I'm just going to tell you quickly because everyone's like, who are the guests? So I'm going to tell you who the guests are. And then I'm going to tell you something else. I got lots to tell you. All right. We have the authors, Daniel R. Levitt and Mark R. Moore. They wrote a book called Intentional Balk, Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating. Jeff. Yeah. Interesting talk. Yeah, very interesting. A great book to read, especially if you want to know how to cheat. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> once once you read this book, you'll be like, wow, I could, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> Get away with that. And then we have Paula Stachira, who wrote a book called A Wing Crush, 100 Epic Recipes for Your Grill or Smoker. I'm having a hard time finding all the time to make every single one because I want to make all 100 and I won't be happy until I do. Before we get into the meat of things, get it, meat, meat yeah, got barbecue. It, I got it. Yeah, okay. I Just got it. Yeah, yeah, checking yeah. on you. Yeah. Right. Making sure you're awake. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports, contests, and events with first to market odds and lines. Find reviews and news for every league, including Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, combat sports, esports, and yes, even golf. Bet Online continues to be the top online resource for all your sports information from live in game betting, props, and futures. Head to Bet Online today or use your mobile device to join and make your first sports bet. Use our promo code BLEAVE50. That's B-L-E-A-V-5-0 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. 
Bet Online, where the game starts. And Jeff, as I said, we're going to start telling just a, a brief, a brief story. Story time. So grab a comfy chair, everyone. Just relax, settle back. Once upon a time, Jeff and Len took a road trip. Is it getting scary, Jeff? I don't want it to be too scary. <laughs> <laughs> You're yawning. It's getting sleepy time. Yeah. We went to the opening of Ray's Roadside Kitchen in Cream Ridge, New Jersey. It was an incredible experience. We went to, to support our buddy Ray Sheehan. He opened the restaurant on a Wednesday. We went that Saturday. He has a foot-long hot dog dedicated to our show. It's called the Baseball and BBQ Footlong. It is a foot-long. It has barbecue sauce. It has barbecued baked beans, crumbled bacon, cheddar cheese, and it was amazing. Jeff, take it away. Tell, tell more about this trip, please. Well, you know, he's talking about a scary story. The scary part was, Two and a half hours going to Jersey with you, and then two and a half hours coming back from Jersey with you. That was scary. <laughs> <laughs> no, it yes, was a uh, it was it was a wonderful experience going down, helping and celebrating Ray opening his his restaurant. Had some great food there. You had the fried chicken and the hot dog. It was and it, he gave us some brisket. It was oh. just uh, it was delicious. Yeah, we we met Ray's sister in law. We met his wonderful the wonderful people that work there. We met his son, Raymond. From the moment you walk in, when you grab the handle, which is actually a meat cleaver, but not a real one. So your fingers will be safe. It's just done right. Inside, you can. there's takeout. There's tables. There's a big mural. There's a big table display in the front with raised sauces and rubs and cookbooks and some other items. And it was just, I, I was just thinking about it. Just the whole experience was just great. And I was thinking about uh, the first thing I did was to find this couple that was waiting there. And I said to them, I said, did you order? Because a lot of people came in, they ordered, and then they were waiting for their order for takeout. And I said to them, that, that baseball and BBQ footlong looks pretty good. And they said, yeah, it does, you know. I said, did you order it? No, maybe maybe we'll get it next time. I said, well, how about now? Well, we already ordered. I said, I, I would like to get you one. They said, oh, no, no, that, you don't need to do that. I, I want to. No, 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 you don't need to. I said, please. So I, I ordered them a baseball and BBQ footlong. And it came with a side. I think they might have gotten fries with it. I don't know. but and they And hopefully... They're listening to the show because they promised that they would become listeners. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. Every new listener will have to buy a baseball and BBQ footlong. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Ray was a gracious host. Of course, he was busy. Uh, we did some busing of the dishes. We didn't wash dishes, but we tried to help out as much we could, you yes. know. And uh, anyway. There will we we interviewed Ray, we interviewed Raymond, his son. Which I I meant to say to Raymond, your your dad didn't really put much effort into naming you, did he? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, great 
I'm telling you that his son is so nice. When were those and, interviews there? Well, Jeff, that's up to you. Oh, okay. okay. You know, but when will they air? Well, they'll come up in an upcoming episode, but a little secret, if you want to see the video of the interview with Ray Sheen, go to YouTube and you'll yeah. find it there on our, on our YouTube page. So Yeah. Go to YouTube, look up Ray Sheehan, and it will be there. All right. So I think it's time, Jeff, to get to intentional balk, baseball's thin line between innovation and cheating, our interview with Daniel R. Levitt and Mark Armour. Daniel Levitt is the author of several award-winning books, including Pass the Glory, How Great Baseball Teams Got That Way, with Mark Armour. Ed Barrow, the bulldog who built the Yankees' first dynasty, the battle that forged modern baseball, and in pursuit of pennants, baseball operation from dead ball to money ball, again with Mark Armour. In 2015, he was selected as recipient of the Bob Davids Award and also received the Henry Chadwick Award from Sabre. Mark Armour has written extensively on baseball and is particularly an expert on labor relations, baseball integration, and biography. Joining Sabre in 1983, Mark has made extensive contributions to the organization over the past four decades. He has authored or co-authored six books, including Joe Cronin, A Life on Baseball, Rain Check, Baseball in the Pacific Northwest, and Pitching Defense and Three-Run Homers about the 1970 Baltimore Orioles, and is the founder of the Sabre Baseball Biography Project, which today contains over 5,000 biographical articles. And I have to say, you have to check that out. Dan Levitt and Mark Armour here have collaborated on several books, including their newest one, Intentional Book, Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating. Welcome, Dan and Mark. Or is it Welcome, Mark, guys. Mark, Mark or Dan? <laughs> Good to be here. Either way, it's fine. And uh, it's great to talk to you guys. So Mark and Dan, so this one's for either one of you. Why a book on innovation and cheating? I know the last couple of years with the Astros, with the... Uh, the trash cans and the, the Apple Watch stuff. So why why a book on this? What, what was the inspiration? Well, as, as we've been following the stories, you know, they've all been very disjointed. There's, like you say, there's the story on the sign stealing, and we have the steroid issue, and we have the goop on the ball. And each one sort of has its own controversy around it. And, you know, Mark and I are historians, and the thing that we found that – these stories just sort of lack context and there is a lot of context around them and there's connections between them and the whole idea of why do we care differently about different types of cheating and how has that feeling evolved over the years? And plus some of the stories are just very funny. And so as having, you know, written these books, having written books before, we just felt like there was really an opportunity here to say something new or at least to put, all of this, all of the cheating in a new, in a, in a little bit of context and a little bit of a new way to, 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 to view it. And, you know, I mean, again, the, the, these are not, these aren't things that you can simply look at as a one-off because cheating is, is so pervasive throughout history. And again, we look at each of these things so differently. Mark? Yeah. So I guess I agree with all that, of course, but the thing I would add is we were we were struck by the fact that I think it's easy to it's easy to sort of miss the horse for the trees, but it's also easy to sort of get up on a high horse and say, you know, this the game is going to hell, right? Everyone's cheating. What happened to the good old days when everybody was great? And the two things that we 
kind of stress throughout the book, and a lot of this is stuff that we learned ourselves as well, is one, this has been going on forever. Really, since the game was invented, people have been you know, figuring out ways to circumvent the rules. It's, it's, it's basically always been with us. And two, it is not just baseball. I mean, this is just sort of the way humans are. And obviously, there's a difference between like ridiculous, over-the-top, terrible crimes in society. But then there's also the things like jaywalking and driving five miles over the speed limit that everyone kind of does. And baseball, these are com- very competitive people, more competitive than anybody that you've probably ever played sports with. And the people who run the teams are very competitive. They tend to be very smart because it's difficult to play a sport well at this level without being pretty smart. And competitive people, I, th- I think, or we think, are often the kinds of people who find themselves like getting to this fork in the road where they have to decide whether they to take this one more step. And occasionally they take that one more step. And in some ways, this built out of our last two books, which were that we, the other two books we did together, which were about team building and how teams innovated in order to get an advantage. And, you know, the story of the front offices. And in many ways, this is a little bit of a continuation, at least at the team level, in the sense of they, there was all these innovations, but then of course there was also the innovations that went over the line as opposed to were more of the legal variety. So uh, I'm going to commend both of you. This is an exceptional book. It's called Intentional Book, Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating. Thoroughly enjoyable. You guys should be commended. As I'm reading it, I'm thinking of all the ways that I want to cheat just like in life. I just like, how can I cheat? I want to be like these guys, <laughs> not you too, right. but the players. Um, you know, it's funny because the book starts uh, right in the beginning, page 10. You have a, a story that we actually debated on this show, and that was Todd Frazier. And Todd Frazier, who was the New York Mets third baseman, and he went over the rail for a foul ball and his glove goes over. And in in the process, the ball drops out of his mitt. He quickly grabbed a ball that was not the ball he caught. And it was uh, whatever practice ball, whatever. And he showed it like he caught it. They ruled it out and he quickly tossed it into the stance. Right. My opinion was that is cheating. At the time, I had Jeff and Gary Mack were both on the show, and their feeling on it was, well, it was, uh, what what'd you call it? Like, not gamesmanship. 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 And you guys talk about gamesmanship and, and cheating and stuff. I want to get your opinion because you do talk about that in the book. Was that cheating? And should he have gotten away with it? Well, we we often talk in the book about cheating very broadly in the sense that, you know, did he did he break a rule and did he do so in order to help his team win? And I think that yes, he did. I mean, this this was a violation of the rules to make the play he made and therefore was cheating. However, the other part of the book, of course, is that there's a lot of cheating that players think is okay. 
Okay. So it, it doesn't actually answer your question. It's sort of, I have a, it's like a semantic, I cement, use semantics to get out of answering it, but it's kind of cheating, but, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. It is. But I think the whole chapter on gamesmanship, which is, which is the first chapter is just, I, I think is the perfect chapter to read to somebody who, you know, or have them read to try and, and then have an argument about it because I think, I mean, I've met people that think pitch framing is cheating. And I've talked to people who think that, you know, faking, catching a a ball in the outfield that you actually trapped is cheating or the neighborhood play is cheating. And I think that if you ask 10 baseball fans, they might end up with a different opinion on at least two of them. I don't know. I, I guess, I guess at the time, to tell you the truth, I missed the play. I missed the Frazier play. And I found it when we, when we were working on this book and I was, and the, the reason why I was so excited, and I think I immediately forwarded the story to Dan, this is, we were still in the process of writing. And I said, I can't believe this happened. And the reason why I thought it was so funny was because I had grown up hearing about the old stories of like the old Orioles and the stuff they used to do, like tugging on the base, the, the belt loops of players and and really kind of thinking that either that was exaggerated or that at the very least that that stuff was like olden time stuff like jesse james stuff that wasn't really going to happen anymore so the fact that adam frazier did something that was like right out of the orioles playbook which was hiding balls in the outfield and then throwing in the other one i think was just great it was just perfect for our purposes because one of the things we wanted to stress to people was that it's not a it's it's not something that's really ebbs and flows based on the morality of the people. It ebbs and flows based on whether they can get away with it. And that's an incredibly difficult play to get away with, the, the Todd Frazier thing. But the other thing I would say is it takes a special kind of person that probably is not any of the four of us to be able to think that quickly. I mean, just imagine being a world-class athlete who made that decision in what a half a second? He he found a ball, picked it up, threw it back into the stands. I mean, that's I don't know. You have to even if you think it's cheating, you have to tip your hat. I mean, that was just a brilliant, <laughs> brilliantly quick thinking play on his part. You know, the other thing that I would just add to that because I mean, I again I agree with everything Mark Mark said is we we talk a lot about the nature of the gamesmanship being fooling in the sense of fooling the umpire. And I think there's a certain sense among the players and, and, and I'd say almost all the fans that once the umpire was introduced in the 1850s, I mean, baseball was originally sort of call your own, like pick up basketball. Uh, and then once it became a club sport and was much more competitive in the 1850s and the 1860s, this sort of this neutral arbiter was added as well as sort of people from each team trying to call it. And I, I think that once that person was added, that it was okay, or most players view it, and I think most fans view it as okay to try and deceive the umpire. So I think deceiving the umpire is viewed different, is viewed very differently than all other kinds of cheating, because the idea is that it's up to the umpire to catch you. And if he doesn't, then shame on him and you got away with something just like, you know, hold off, you know, holding in football. And, you know, if you step on the line in basketball, you don't necessarily hand the ball over. I, I think that there's a whole 
Mark and I talk about what we call the consensual ethic, which is sort of like unwritten rules, but you know, unwritten rules has sort of its own connotation. So we call it a consensual ethic. And I think there's this sense that if you can fool the umpire, it is sort of your duty to do it. And I think many players feel that way. Just to put a bow on the whole Todd Frazier play, I happened to be at an event and Todd Frazier was speaking, and I actually asked him that question. He claims Super. he claimed that he caught the ball. <laughs> and as he came down, as he hit, I guess, the top of the dugout or, or the chairs, he, he that's where he lost the ball and then, you know, picked up that other ball and threw in the stand. So he said he actually caught the ball for the out. But in showing the umpire, it wasn't the same ball. You know, that's what he says. And, and it's actually on YouTube if anybody want to look, search for yeah. it. But they did put up that, yeah. that up there. So uh, just to, to briefly uh, get off topic a second. And yesterday – and one one of the things that Dan and I looked for while we were working on this book was it wasn't difficult to find players that were willing to do what Todd Frazier did. What was more interesting was to find people that wouldn't, like people that got to a place where they were being asked to cheat or or even to fool the umpire and would not. And those are much more rare. We mentioned a couple of them in the book, but I don't know if you guys follow tennis, but in yesterday's U.S. Open men's final, the guy who ultimately lost the match, um, Carlos Alcaraz won, but the guy who, who lost the match, there was a play where uh, he won the point, but he went to the chair umpire and said, actually, it bounced on my side before I hit it, and they took the point away. He, he said he went to the umpire and got a point taken away from himself. Wow. And uh, <laughs> to me, that is... Based on our research of baseball, I mean, this is a very unusual thing mm-hmm. that this happened. Exactly. And I, I w- again, I mean, this is there's probably eight or ten things that have happened in sports since this book came out that we Dan and I said to ourselves, "Man, I wish that we you know put out the book a year later, we would have included this story." And I might have included the Alcaraz story because I think it's so unusual, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, most people, I think, even if you knew, this is sort of our point. Even if you knew that the ball hit twice on your side, almost everyone, and this includes 12-year-olds, are not going to say it. They're not going to admit it. So at least there's at least one honest man out there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the book is into chapters of, of different, you know, you have the deception and espionage and the uh, roster shenanigans. I just want to start in the introduction, though, where you have the Hornsby Doctrine, which is fascinating. And I'm going to uh, quote it. It's baseball players and others within the game will and should find ways to bend and break the rules is the job of the authorities to stop them. End quote. And he didn't really say that, did he? He totally said that. Oh. He wrote it, in fact, or oh, he really? or someone else wrote it and uh-huh. under his name. Uh, it was in a it was in a book he wrote near the end of his life. And he said, in fact, that he was in baseball for 50 years, professional baseball, and that he was never involved in a game where there wasn't cheating. Wow. So as you can tell, that became a very a good provocative leadoff mm-hmm. for Dan and I to start with. It's like, okay, there's cheating in every game. And of course, Hornsby's cheating includes the neighborhood play and it includes, he didn't, there was no pitch framing back then, but he, he included all of this stuff as cheating, in addition to the stuff that most people would would say was cheating, like the spitball and corking a bat and all that stuff. 
And he was just saying, yeah, there wasn't a game. And the second part of that quote is, or the second second part that was implied by the quote you read is not just that, you know, based there's, there's been cheating in every game, but if you're not willing to do this, I don't want you on my team. Wow. Like this is part of the game. Uh, and he's not the only person that said that. Mm-hmm. Dan found a good quote by George Bamberger that he who said that you know fifty years later, where he basically said the same thing. And Jim Russo, who we quote in the book, says the same thing. It's like we you have to cheat. The other teams could be cheating. You're cheating your fans if you're not cheating, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not it's a it's a pretty commonly held view, although probably a lot of people wouldn't say it out loud. Like Hornsby was kind of, you know, an irascible dude. So he was willing to say just about anything. I mean, I don't think Lou Gehrig would have said it, but. (laughs) As you said before, there's different levels of cheating. The book, it's fascinating. All the chapters with whether it's discussing the, uh, the trash cans with the sign stealing, but it's, it's not just the Houston Astros with their sign stealing. It was, you know, there may be a major home run that was as the result of of a stolen sign, Dan, I think you know what I'm talking about since you, you wrote it. What would that home run be? Well, the the, the Bobby Thompson home run in, in 1951, I, I think that one of the most fascinating things that I found is that during the 20th century, there was actually there was no rule against mechanical sign stealing. So this is where we talk about this consensual ethic that everybody believed that using binoculars to steal signs from center field and, and then and then signal to the batter what pitch was coming was, in fact, unfair and cheating. Multiple people said that the people who did it, you know, always denied it. The, the authorities said, gee, if we catch somebody, we, we probably need to do something about it. But they were also very quick to say there's no rule against it. So. I, you know, obviously the famous Bobby Thompson home run, there was rumors in the early 60s. There were then, there were rumors persisted for a long time. It wasn't until Joshua Prager's article in the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, around 2000, 2001, where he actually sort of did the investigative journalism and, and, and corroborate and, and got people to go on record and corroborate the story. But so clearly, I, I, whether Thompson got the sign or not, I think is, you know, remains a little bit, you know, um, there, there's some ambiguity around it, but clearly the Giants were stealing signs. That said, one of the most fascinating parts is that there was actually no rule on the books against it, although everybody felt it was unfair and wrong. The other interesting part of that is that, you know, David Smith, the great, you know, uh, founder of Retrosheet and the great, you know, baseball researcher for so many years did a a really fascinating study about that after this science dealing came to light and he is a Dodger fan. So he, a Brooklyn Dodger fan and probably not old enough to remember that season, but he does remember when they played in Brooklyn and he said he was, he was really looking forward to like digging into this and how much the, the giants were helped by this. And he discovered, and he, he gave a presentation about this and he said he was upset that he discovered what he discovered, which was that the giants didn't hit any better after this operation was put into place. Cause I mean, there's a, there's a date that Herman Franks or Cy Levars or whoever they are that basically said, this is the day that we started doing it. And even though the, the giants did get very hot the rest of the season, that 
it wasn't because of their hitting it at, at uh, the polo grounds. It was because of their hitting on the road and also their pitching. So again, it's like, that doesn't mean they didn't cheat. It just sometimes cheating doesn't work. That's the other, <laughs> the other part of it. That's the most famous binoculars and telescope story, but there, it happened throughout uh, using uh, lights, I guess, in the scoreboard and, right. and things of that nature. So, you know, that, that might be the most famous, but it was definitely not the only only one. You know, I, I work for a, a cybersecurity firm. So when I got up to the chapter called Espionage, that was pretty fascinating. It was the Cardinals, I believe, and, right. and, the, and, and the Astros. Right. It was Chris Correa, who was, uh, I think, the scouting director for the Cardinals or a similar position. And he hacked into the Houston Astros database and looked at everything they had in there. So, I mean, he was looking at uh, notes they had on trade possibilities, what conversations people were having with other general managers. Uh, he was looking at what they, what who they wanted to draft, what mm-hmm. they were thinking of paying for bonuses. So, I mean, he 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 basically saw the whole database, and uh, you know, once Houston realized what was going on, the FBI got involved. They had no idea who was doing it, and eventually. Chris Correa was was caught and he was sentenced to 46 months in jail. And one of the things we talk about is sort of is, you know, one penalties versus, you know, sort of a cost benefit. And, you know, 46 months in jail or 40, a sentence of 46 months anyway, it's certainly a deterrent to future people, people doing it. But it was fascinating. I mean, you know, going to innovation, I mean, once teams had these databases, there was just a huge temptation to see what was in them uh, from other teams. Yeah. One of the interesting parts about this was that Correa, I mean, Correa did do some sort of amateurish ways to sort of cover his tracks. But what he also did is because he was so, you know, ticked off at the Astros in general, because a lot of them were ex-Cardinal employees and there was some, there was some bad blood that he, he didn't just leave well enough alone and steal the stuff and take an advantage, but he actually published some of this stuff on on Deadspin, or he sent it sent it to Deadspin, so that they could essentially embarrass the Astros, right? So the Astros, because they had scout reports on people and you know negative comments about some of their own players and whatnot, which you know was awful for the Astros. So he he kind of like I don't know whether he could have gotten away with it longer had he hadn't done this, but it was very much personal. In addition to wanting to help the Cardinals, he really wanted to hurt the Astros and in particular, the people that Jeff Lunau and, and the people that were running the team. The, the crime that he went to jail for was, was had to be hacking. I mean, correct. It, it was, right, hacking, yeah, yes. yeah correct. it wasn't, it wasn't the, I guess the bonuses or whatever, but he had, he actually hacked into another uh, company's information. That, it was industrial espionage, which is yeah. why the, why the FBI uh, got involved. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the, the 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 baseball you basically suspended him for life, but it was the FBI that did the real investigation to take him down. So you have chapter upon chapter of different elements of uh, you know whether it's deception, you know, gamesmanship, all that. But there's definitely some that are we would consider worse than others, apparently, because. You have a chapter on steroids. Now, steroids is what's keeping a lot of people out of the Hall of Fame. The probably with the uh, with the trash can scandal of the Astros, 
If Altuve continues his career, he'll go into the way it is. He'll go in the Hall of Fame. Carlos Beltran, even though he didn't, you know, manage the Mets, he he resigned, you know, before he got the chance to manage. He might go in the Hall of Fame, but steroids seems to be the ultimate cheating uh, scandal. Is is that what we're what we should what we're led to believe is steroids is the worst? I don't know that we we rank them. Um, I, I think that there's clearly differences. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about steroids, steroids is just a particularly emotional topic for people. And one of the things that, that I, we found interesting was that the very first drug scandal happened in 1951 in baseball when, and I had, well, this was one of the fun things to do in the research when Hal Newhouse, that came out that Hal Newhouser had pitched, who was MVP for the Tigers, the pitcher in 1945, had taken Novocaine shots in his shoulder in order to pitch at the end of the season and in the World Series, which the Tigers won. And there was these headlines such as, Tigers doped their way to World Series victory. And for about two or three days, this was a this was a large story as to how are we going to look at this? And I think what eventually came down is sort of this idea that if you take drugs to sort of restorative drugs to get you back to your original ability, whether that's cortisone shots or LASIK surgery or Tommy John surgery, then you know you're moving a tendon from one part of your body to your elbow, that that's okay. But if you're taking something that gives you sort of superhuman or ability beyond what your natural ability was, that's not okay. And I I think that there's sort of a gray area there, but clearly there is some line in there that as a society we've defined fairly, fairly importantly. And, you know, I mean, I I don't know if if it's right that that's the line or it's not, but, but clearly we as a society have, have sort of drawn a wide gray line. And if you're on one side of it, you know, I, people just feel differently. And I, again, I, I think there's just something very psychological about that. And we talk a little bit about possible reasons. One may be just the idea that the whole idea of competition on the field is, you know, we're looking at the very best, we're, we're looking at the limits of human ability going against the limits of human ability. And when we feel like somehow that's been tainted, that all of a sudden it's, it sort of changes the whole nature of what we think we're seeing. But you know, I, I don't I don't really have a good definitive answer for you. We try and lay out sort of how we view it and how people see it and and what some of the differences are. And then, you know, people have to make their own emotional call. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly I would certainly agree that steroids are a special thing. And we kind of treat it that way, that people you know, kind of joke about Gaylord Perry, but nobody really jokes about. Barry Bonds, right? I mean, you mentioned Barry Bonds and people get angry. Uh, no one gets angry when you talk about Gaylord Perry. People think it's funny or fascinating or interesting or whatever. And, you know, in some way, I mean, there's probably re- maybe there's some reasons for that, some of which Dan laid out. I think that we we certainly do not believe that we have the power to change anyone's mind about this. So we didn't really try. What I think is interesting is that. There's definitely a, what Dan talked about in terms of making the human, you know, the human body better than it was meant to be, et cetera, is absolutely a gray area in terms of, how, you know, what what that means or how or how that is. And I think it's going to become more interesting in the future if we have the ability to, you know, make our knees stronger or 
make our elbows stronger than they were intended to be. Or if you have medication that allows you to come back from surgeries quicker. I've talked about the fact that, you know, my mother had her hip replaced and she took steroids to during her recovery process. And I, and I used to say to her, like, you couldn't play baseball anymore if you did this. And that's sort of funny, but on the other hand, it's like, and I don't want to bog this down, but do we want our players to come back? Right. And I think that if I, you could wave a wand and say, well, we want people to use them for this reason, but not that reason, right. We want people to come back, but we don't want them to, to do it, to get stronger. And I don't know how to do that. I'm not claiming that I do, but it's definitely a, it's definitely a very complicated problem. Well, it's it's very good with uh, with with Tommy John because that's true. That is taking a tendon from one place to another. Basically, you're rebuilding an arm. It's some people actually say that you come back stronger from that. So that that's a good point. Well, you know, how about LASIK surgery? Right? I mean, you're taking people's eyesight and you're making it better than they, it was they were born with. Or, or whatever, any kind of sort of, you know, laser eye surgery. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, there's clearly a gray area there, but again, I mean, I think once the line's been drawn, what's, what's, what's fair as defined by baseball and what's not, I think if you're on the wrong side of the line, obviously that's, that's a problem. I, I to, to me, the biggest problem with steroids was that everybody thought it was really bad in the 1990s that, we shouldn't be doing this. It's a big problem. And yet there was no way to detect it because you didn't have testing. And as we've talked about, as we talk about throughout the book, th- that is a recipe for disaster, for chaos and controversy, where you have where the cost benefit analysis of cheating is way out of whack, where the benefit is obvious and large and there's really no penalty for it because you, 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 you can't catch people, which is why, I you know, whether the number was 10% or 50%, I mean, we, we have no idea of knowing at this point, but clearly it was a fairly significant, there was a lot of people doing it. And, you know, but I think that my, my, the, the, my, my biggest issue or problem with just trying to define it and talk about it and make some definitive statements is we don't know how big the problem was. And we were at a very strange time in baseball where you had this hugely out of whack cost benefit uh, of, of, of this type of cheating. Yeah. And it, it even comes into today. I mean, as baseball fans, we love our numbers. We love the tradition and it, the PED just sent that out of whack. I mean, we don't care if football players take, take steroids. They have, you know, let them big, get big, strong and, and knock each other out. <laughs> but for baseball, it's different. Just, I heard today that Aaron judges, you know, he has 55 home runs. He's trying to, break the American League record by uh, by Roger Maris, 61. And a lot of people say, well, what's the standard? Is it 61? Is it the 70 by, uh, what, 73 by Barry Bonds? It, right. It's even coming into today's talk, talking about baseball. And, it's, and my problem with, with, with the steroids is that it tainted everything. It just, it just taints everything going forward. Well, that's all I have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a part of me that I, I joke about this, and I don't think, I think that as I think about it more, I don't actually believe what I'm about to say, which is, which is that I remember Joe Sheehan writing near the beginning of the season, like he just, whatever happens with Judge, he hopes he hits either, either 60 home runs or 74. That if it's any number in between that, there's going to be like angry shouting at each other 
that's mm-hmm. going to ensue. And I think that the chances are pretty good that we're going to end up in between those numbers, <laughs> which means there's going to be there's going to be that angry shouting. And you know, baseball is is great, and for me, it's part, you know the reason I like it is because it's relaxing and I and it takes me away from all the problems of the world and I don't want there to be angry shouting about this. <laughs> that I mean that's totally selfish but I just want I I guess if I was to blame Barry Bonds for anything it, it would largely be that like I don't want to be I'd rather be talking about how great you were you know that would be more fun sure um and I and the fact that I can't do that and whether that's my fault or his fault I don't know but it's it's just sort of too bad. Yeah. Not your fault. I could tell you that. <laughs> well, I always say what we think. The complication around it is that, you know, once, I mean, unless baseball does some sort of one of these NCAA vacating victories, vacating home runs, you actually sort of do some sort of rule book thing like they vacated a bunch of no hitters. The, the number's the number. So, I mean, you end up in this crazy sort of netherworld where the number's the number and you have a sort of a, sort of a strong minority of people who don't believe that it's legitimate. It just, I just think it makes this confusion. And, but and, and, until you do something like you did with baseball with the no hitters and say all these no hitters that were less than nine innings now don't count, uh, it is what it is to a certain degree. What's, right. I mean, what's funny, what's funny about the Bonds thing too, and this, this, the bonds thing is, is, is not just the bonds thing. It's all these guys, but is that if it wasn't for the hall of fame, you could argue that he hasn't really been punished at all. Right. He didn't, he never got suspended. He was able to work in, in the, you know, he, he got, he got a job in baseball again, as did McGuire. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like he was like, he he got the Pete Rose treatment. He never, he, he never, is been punished in the ways that people are punished for other kinds of crimes. So in, in one sense, you could say like, well, he kind of got away with it, but the reason why he didn't get away with it is because of the hall of fame. The hall of fame is this huge thing in baseball compared to everything else. And it seems like he's being, he's still being punished mm-hmm. because of this big honor that we take so seriously. Yep. So moving off of PED, if you have a chapter called roster shenanigans, and we see this every day. I mean, if the phantom injury goes on the IL to bring somebody up. I mean, is that, I don't know if I call that cheating or not. I mean, I guess, I mean, what would you call it? I mean, is, is it is it cheating to have change, put someone on the roster? Well, I mean, what we, I mean, the, the stuff that we talk about is some of the more famous egregious stuff, but I'll, I'll get into your question and Mark can too in a minute. But, you know, I mean, the, 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 the first really famous one, I mean, well, look, first of all, this has been going on since the 1850s when you had these club teams and, te- and, and you, you essentially weren't allowed to jump from team to team. But, you know, these clubs, the Excelsiors were grabbing somebody off of the unions as a ringer. And then, of course, they were all amateurs. And by 1860, they were paying players to play. Right. So, sort of bringing people onto your roster illegally literally goes back to the original club teams playing each other mm-hmm. around New York, you know, and then you got branch Ricky who he invents the farm system, sort of this idea that you can control these minor league teams. And then, you know, 10 years later, he's judge Landis is making 74 players out of his farm system, free agents because he was illegally quote, covering them up and keeping them from advancing fairly or from going to other teams. So this is, this has been going on 
you know, forever. I, I would say going to your specific question, I, I think there's a lot of, I mean, Judge Landis had, you know, one guy or two guys in the office to sort of help him enforce this. I mean, baseball today has this huge enforcement division. So I, I think that, you know, the roster shenanigans are a little tougher to get away with today as we, you know, John Capilello, the GM of the Braves, was put on the permanently ineligible list just a few years ago for fooling around, I mean, for illegally sort of funneling money um, around to Latin American players to get around the rules of, of how much you could spend to sign them. So at least with the medical stuff, I mean, two things. One is if a guy says he's hurt, how do you I mean, how do you say, no, you're not? I mean, that's sort of the history. That That's the history of baseball owners doing that to players. And, and, and we all sort of cringe when we hear those stories. But that's not to say it's not happening. I guess all I'm saying is I think baseball has a fairly significant enforcement division now. And I would think that if someone was doing that egregiously, that there would be somebody on them. At least I hope there would be. But, you know, obviously it's, you know, it's cheating if a guy's not hurt and you're using him to carry an extra, what do you know, 20, you know, 29th player down now that we, I think you have 28 people on your roster now, right? In September. So in September, yeah. Yeah. And I, I would say, I guess, again, admitted that he doesn't really know and i would i would add that too but i guess i would i would say that teams are probably are cheating i mean they probably are doing this and i think that they're not it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to most other teams because they want to be able to do it too right everyone wants to do it uh if the yankees have uh or the mets you know have a a catcher that's that's sort of banged up, but they don't want to put, put them on the on the injured list. So they need to have a third catcher. They need to figure out a way to get a third catcher up. The Braves aren't going to complain because it could be them next week that wants to do the same thing. And I, I just, I just don't, I, I don't know how you stop that exactly. But I mean, the the rule book for how teams have to deal with each other and with Major League Baseball and with players is larger than the the umpire rule book i mean and the reason it's so large is because people have tried to cheat i mean the rules about like funneling players to you know funding money to the players in latin america it just seems so easy like well you can we give a guy a million dollar bonus that's all you can give him and that seems so simple but it didn't take long i think the red sox might have been the first team to get nabbed for this to basically say well we're going to give you and your brother two million dollars you guys decide who how it gets split up right mm-hmm. that's how you get around it it didn't take long for some team to do that. And then the Braves got even more creative. They found like, you know, they, they had pools of people, only one of whom they cared about. And they gave them this huge bonuses. I just think teams are just going to try and figure out, it out. I think that they jumped in on the Braves because I do think that Major League Baseball is especially sensitive to players being screwed you know, in, in terms of like their advancement. And I think that in that case, I think that teams like to take advantage of, uh, especially the non-Americans. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think? I, I was fascinated by the the spitball when it was outlawed. And yet, Major League Baseball, they grandfathered in, I guess, that the players that were using it could continue using it until they were out of the game. I thought I thought that was fascinating. It was like it wasn't any other, you know, it wasn't like uh, they said, well, anyone using cork bats now, they're illegal. And but those that are using them can use them until you're out of the game, until you retire. 
what what were you what was your feeling as you, as you found that? Well, the the analog that I remember from from when I was a kid is that I think it was in 1971 that Major League Baseball required that you had to have a hard shelled helmet for the first time. Before that, you could you could have like those little inserts that you put in the cap, and they grandfathered in all of the players that were wearing caps. And so throughout the seventies, you had guys like Norm Cash, uh, who never wore a, he never wore a helmet. I think Bob Montgomery of the Red Sox was the last guy, maybe in nineteen seventy nine. Um, and the reason why it, it could have been more, but most people by the time they made this rule, most people were wearing helmets. It was just only a handful of people left. Um, so that was an example. And I, I actually thought about that with the pitch clock rules over the years. Like, would the players be happier if like? They grin like you could be slow if you were, you know, like if you played in 2020, those guys continue to be slow, but all the new pitchers and the new batters, and then eventually it would just be fast again. <laughs> that would be that, that's that's putting too much burden on the umpire. As for the spitball, I, it's funny because there was no union, so they, they didn't really have to do it to protect the pleat the players, they didn't care about the players. Uh, but I'm sure that the you know, there were some of the best pitchers in baseball. It, this was not a uh, this is not a minor uh, problem at that time. I mean, so they had to they had to deal with the fact that some of the true superstars were throwing the spitball. You know, and again, it's probably not a, really an analog, but it's just interesting to think about sort of when you change rules and how it helps some people versus others because it's fairly rare. But you know, you think about banning the shift, it, the people you're really helping are the left-handed sluggers, and it, it, it's it's I'm, I'm I agree with you. I mean, it's very rare to see rules that benefit just one select group of, of players. So I, yeah, it, it, it was very interesting to, to sort of talk about that. The book is called intentional book baseball's thin line between innovation and cheating. Great stories in the book uh, gets into the greenies and the hoses and, and rakes. It's uh, just, just, just fastened cork and, and penny nails uh, but I want to ask you about innovation, and this is not in the book because it's very new. It's the pitchcom. Now, with, with pitchcom, it, it that was used to, I guess, stop sign stealing from, I guess, the second the, the runner on second base. And recently, I think it was Max Sergio said, "Look, it works, but I don't want to use it because I want to be able to deceive the 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 the, the runner on second base." into those signs I'm using. So maybe he's going to relay the sign to the wrong sign to, to the batter. So let's talk about innovation. So it, it, besides the pitch com, what other innovation has there been in, in the game? Well, I mean, I, I mean, you, you, we can go back. I mean, modern prison binoculars were invented in 1894. And by 1899, you know, the Phillies were using them to steal signs from center field <laughs> yeah. uh, for manager Billy Shetline's office in these old stadiums. I mean, even come stay in these little ballparks. You had the manager's office was often out in in a in a box in center field. But I mean, another thing. I mean, if you if for just innovation, and, and I mean, another one that's sort of interesting to me is sort of the whole nature of the, the, the sort of designer pitch. I mean, spider tech, mm-hmm. um, which is the goop that they've been using, was invented in in the year, late about 2010, 2011 for these world's strongest man competitions, where these guys had to carry these atlas stones. And spider tech was so you could like grip these stones and the guys who invented it were joking, you know, we're talking 
you know, six years later, they're saying we were getting all these all these orders from these major league baseball clubhouses, and we didn't have any idea why. And now they figured it out. And then to to do these designer pitches, you also had to have this high speed video, which is relatively recent, because it's not just sort of putting the goop on and throwing and seeing what happens. It's that you're you're looking at every minute change of your wrist or your fingers or how you're gripping it or how your arm angle is, and so between the technology of the spider tack and the technology of this, of the high speed video, all of a sudden we're creating these pitchers who could do truly amazing things, which is why I think in, uh, you know, in, in early 2021, everyone was saying, you know, we got to do something about this finally. Right. And if the pitcher who really used a lot of that innovation was, you know, Trevor Bauer, that's despite what he, he has done right. in the, in the <laughs> what he's done, but he really took that, he used, used that to his advantage. I mean, he went to a facility, had the high speed and the spot attack and see the revolutions per minute and all that stuff. Yeah, I think that the fact that Trevor Bauer, you know, basically didn't like anybody and vice versa made him sort of the perfect guy for the story because he uh, he I mean, he basically figured out how to do it and then basically called out everyone who was doing it. He basically just told all the analysts like, Hey, anybody who gets a spin rate over this amount is cheating period. And then people like looked at the spin rates and they said, Oh, it looks like Justin Furland is a cheater and Garrett Cole is a cheater and, and uh, whatnot. And that's because that's the kind of guy Bauer was. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. I mean, Bauer was a little bit like the, he's a completely different personality, but, He's like the Jose Canseco of the of the of the problem. Canseco was the guy who basically said everyone's taking steroids, and nobody really believed him because he's kind of a kook. Uh, and then Bauer was the guy who said everyone's doing this, and Bauer's—they were probably both right. Yeah. Not and when I say everybody, it wasn't everybody, but it was you know a sizable number of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I when when we have authors on and we're reading the books, of course, to take uh, uh, the notes that I take, I I try to get to most of them during the interview and i'm always kicking myself when we finish and i almost just kicked my and i missed something and i almost just kicked myself because i had something that i think you guys did that i thought was excellent and that is the fact that you brought in the negro leagues into the book because you know major league baseball had said that the negro leagues would be part of of baseball they would acknowledge it and whatever and Whatever. You don't see that a lot, but you guys mentioned them numerous times. And then when I was doing my research, I noticed that, Mark, you chaired uh, Sabre's Negro Leagues Task Force, which recommended that Sabre recognize the seven great Negro Leagues as major leagues. So, one, I wanted to commend you on putting that in the book and two, on being chairing that i think that's i think that's very important so i just wanted to bring that up well i appreciate that i mean most of the credit for the for the task force goes to the negro leagues historians and researchers that i helped sort of organize but it was really there it was it was basically us listening to them uh and uh and you know properly which which uh they managed to convince um they had a great case and they managed to convince a lot of people which i'm thrilled about and in terms of the Negro Leagues, again, I, I I kind of reached out to some of these same experts that I am fortunate enough to know, and just said, what what kind of cheating was was there in uh, was there in the Negro Leagues? And I had I had a few people that sent me some stuff, which was great. Uh, it, obviously, there's not 
as much documentation. Um, and the best thing about the Negro Leagues that is documented is there's a lot of oral history. So there's a lot of people that, that could tell these funny stories that, of course, the white major leaguers have been telling funny stories forever. And, um, you know, the, the black stories aren't quite as centered, but they are there. And, and you know, the, the lesson, I think, for the reader, hopefully, is that it's not systemic to Major League Baseball. It's just these are great competitive people and they had great competitive people in the Negro Leagues too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a very human, very human thing. Yeah. And when you take the 1% of the 1% of the most competitive people on the planet, they're going to try and figure out some way to, mm-hmm. to win. And occasionally that's going over the line. One other thing on, on innovation and it's coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. And I think, you know, what I'm talking about is the automatic strike zone. What do you think will be the effect on that? I mean, you, you talked about pitch framing before. Now, pitch framing would be, I guess, a thing of the past if they bring in the automatic strike zone, don't you think? Yeah, you know, the question is, is I, I mean, I think until I, I think there's going to be a, a learning period where you're going to see people figure out ways to take advantage of that automatic strike zone. You know, you know, is there a way, way like to move your knee in a funny way that you're going to get a, a call that the, the machine will think it's a strike? Or a ball, I, or, or is there something the catcher can do to like jam his glove into the strike zone at some particular moment and and get the call? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm certain, and, and maybe it'll all work perfectly. But if there's a way to somehow tweak it, I'm sure that they will. And then, and I know Mark has some other thoughts on how you could do it too. But Jeff, if you're in cybersecurity, I mean, are, are there ways that you can even sort of hack into the thing and? Again, I don't think anyone's going to do that if it's if, if jail time. But if it's if, if if it's not, if there's ways to sort of just, you know, somehow tweak this thing without doing anything too illegal, who knows? <laughs> if it's a computer, you could probably hack into it at some point. Yeah, I'd be concerned about that if I was major league baseball. Well, the, the other the other part of it is this is what I've heard about the automatic strike zone they've used in the minor leagues is that it's two dimensional, right? It's a it's a two dimensional surface not a three-dimensional surface like the strike zone supposedly is it's a cylinder it's possible that you know pitchers need to figure out where that where that edge is but the thing i'm interested in is how the top and bottom of the strike zone are determined how does this how does the machine know that aaron judge and jose altuve have different strike zones Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, and and again, I don't I don't know the answer. Does does Aaron Judge like go into some room and get measured, and that gets entered in the database, so that's it, or does he wear something on his chest? I mean, I'm not sure, but you know, like you know, Ricky Henderson and Pete Rose used to crouch down to get the smallest that strikes on they possibly could. Is there a way to do something with this? I don't know, but I think that people will think about it, and yes. <laughs> just that just that's. That's what that's sort of what happened. And and Aaron Judge and Jose Altuve should have a different strike zone. Yeah. Right. I don't know. But but determining what exactly it is, you know, that's a different it's a different question. Yeah, that strike zone you see on TV on the box, that's different for everybody. But that remains stationary. So that's you know, well, I can't always do that. I've always wondered about that. Like, do they do is that just the same box for every person or do they change it? I don't I don't actually know. But obviously, Aaron Judge has got a pretty. He should have a pretty tall box. <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> a big shipping box like like that you put a refrigerator in <laughs> yeah exactly so in doing my research i found something very important so I, I can't this is another note that i can't skip over dan you you play left field uh for a team in minnesota uh, i'm assuming not the twins but uh to, what, what is this that you you're a left fielder well, this was I, I have I have I, I gave it up after a few injuries a year or so ago. Um, uh -huh. Although I'm hoping to get back, but we play what's called vintage baseball, and there's a number of teams around the country that do this. Um, we play by essentially 1860s rules, and the key components of this are there's no gloves. You can't overrun first base. So if you're playing a team that's not tip used to this, that's how you can get a few easy outs because we, we're all taught from the time we're playing t-ball to run through first base. And then there's no balls and strikes. Baseball in 1860s in these club games was a gentleman's game. And the umpire will say, sir, you need to swing if it's a strike. And he will tell the pitcher, sir, you need to throw that ball across the plate if it's a ball. It's a, it's a lot of fun. You know, I mean, it's really just a way to sort of do something other than golf, which I'm not very good at in the summer and get out and compete a little bit. And it's social and it's kind of fun to play. And, um, oh, and the other thing is you can catch a ball on a bounce. On so, bounce, yes. you know, we often have played, you know, some, you know, sometimes, you know, you go to these little towns and you play in these town festivals and you play the American Legion team or something. And for about the first couple innings, you know, we get ahead because they overrun for space and we tag them and they don't realize they can catch the ball on a bounce. And, but once the you know the, the real ball players realize sort of what the rules are, they they start coming back by about the fourth inning. Yes, <laughs> we have a, a friend of the podcast named Jeff Cornhouse. Cornhouse, he goes by the name Pine Tar, and he goes uh, he plays uh, vintage baseball, and uh, it's very interesting. He goes around these uh, towns, and uh, yeah, that's where we met him, and we saw him play uh, play those games. They're quite interesting. Yeah, and and you guys might be interested because he he introduced us to uh marjorie adams and who has since passed away uh but we had her on the show she's the great granddaughter of doc adams mm -hmm. right. and and of yeah. course we we know who doc adams is and he was he's been advocating and um he and other people uh for doc adams to of course be in the baseball hall of fame funny thing is he, he was on the ballot and he almost got in and then they found his yeah he missed by a vote then they found his written rules which sold at auction for i think like three million something and he wasn't on the the latest ballot so i don't know how that works but <laughs> they, they 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 change the rule every the rules for how those ballots work every year and I know a couple of people that fortunately are, are very good at this stuff. And if I have a question, like when is movie Tiant on the ballot again, I just, I just ask somebody else because I can't follow the rules, which they just changed again after, uh, after, you know, I thought it was a success that they got six people in, in December, but they've changed the rules again. I don't know when Doc Adams is up. Well, gentlemen, Mark, Dan, thank you for being on Baseball and BBQ. I know you both have your own separate websites. If you want to plug those, please go ahead. And before you do, you're both members of Sabre, and I really, I'm, I really enjoy reading and being part of, of Sabre. I'm on the pictorial committee, so I post the pictures of the debut of, of old major leagues every, every day when they come out. You know, I commend your, your work on, uh, for, for Sabre. So please go ahead. Let's tell, tell us about your websites. 
Well, appreciate it. Um, I would just say the main, most important thing is that the book website is intentionalbachbook.com, intentionalbachbook.com. And, you know, we have links to our individual uh, websites. Mine is daniel-levitt.com. But at the book website, it has, you know, how you can order the book and all the stuff on our appearances and various uh, media appearances. Yeah, I agree. I would just go to the, I would just go to there and you can find probably more than you need to know about all the other stuff we've done. We largely, I mean, I use, use my website to keep track of stuff for myself. Mm-hmm. Like if there's a, if there's something I wrote that appears somewhere, I use my website to put it there because otherwise I'm never able to find it again. But if people want to go there and that's great, people besides my mom, wonderful. <laughs> uh, it's mark-armor.net. And, and um, Mark, I was looking at your website, and uh, you've seen almost four thousand films. That's quite a quite, that's quite a lot of films. <laughs> oh yeah, so the films are. I forgot about that. Yeah, it is. It's, it's probably it's probably too many. I need to have. Um, I just went for a walk on the beach uh, with my son and wife this morning, and I was accused of having too many sedentary hobbies. So I probably <laughs> the fact that I like reading and writing and watching films kind of like outs me right (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no i do i do i do love uh i do love movies so the one thing i want to just say before we get off because oftentimes when we are interviewed there's a lot of talk about all this bad stuff that people are doing and i just want to stress in case it wasn't clear that we love baseball i mean we do We, we love the game we love uh, learning these funny stories. We love the fact that these are ultra competitive people and they're humans. Baseball has occasionally gotten themselves into, into trouble by kind of letting things go a little bit too long and they have to correct themselves. And I, I think we just love the stories. And, uh, and for the most part, I can't wait to see what's next. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen, for, for being on Thank baseball you. and BQ. Be, be Thank you. Thanks, guys. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast. And if you want a lip-smacking, finger-licking good podcast, then you got to listen to Baseball and BBQ with Len and Jeff. They have the best guests and the best recipes on all the internet. So check it out. Baseball and BBQ. And we want to thank Dan and Mark for coming on Baseball and BBQ. Intentional book, the thin line between cheating and innovation. That was it. Like I said, like we said earlier, it was an interesting, interesting book. Very interesting. And and Jeff, am I wrong now? Don't you feel now like you can cheat the system and get away with it? <laughs> well, you know, you got to be really careful how to do that, you know? Uh, <laughs> yes, I know. I know. I wouldn't really do it. I mean. You know, but it was every time you think that somebody's not going to come up with a new subject, you know, something new in baseball, they do. Yeah. And this was it was it was great. Well, before we go on, I want to just tell everybody if they want to give us a call and leave a message to be put on the show. Give us a call at 516-855-8214. Email us baseball and BBQ at gmail.com. We have a Twitter page. At Baseball and BBQ. Leave a comment on our Facebook page, Baseball and BBQ. 
Instagram, baseball and barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. As I mentioned, we do have a YouTube page where you can see that Ray Sheen interview. Just check us out on YouTube. Our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Yeah, do it. Do it. Thank you. And Jeff, I will, I'm going to mention all of those, but I've got something I want to do first. I want to give a shout out. Could you please give me the shout out? Shout out! I would like to shout out to two very special people. They really are wonderful. And that is Nick and Zoe O'Brien. They are two incredible people. They are fans of the show. I know that they listen. And that's how I know they're going to hear this Shout out. So thank you guys for listening. Now, one other thing you guys should know is that you should go to you should go to Ray's Roadside Kitchen, but you should definitely go to barbecuebuddha.com to get Ray's amazing sauces, rubs, and cookbooks. Go to baseballbbq.com for grilling tools and accessories. Grilling tools with baseball bat handles. How cool is that? You can hit a home run as you flip your steak. And go to the Pandemic Baseball Book Club because a lot of the authors that we have on this show can be found there. And please buy their books. Give them the support they deserve. As we always say, they do the heavy lifting. All we have to do is the reading and the the light stuff and whatever. You know, Len, I, I was told on, by good authority that you made uh, chicken wings last week. I did. Who, wait, what good authority? What? You got a spy? You got somebody spying on me, Jeff? Actually, you were the, <laughs> you were the authority that told me that you made chicken wings last week, but you made it from a cookbook, Wing Crush. Yes. Wing Crush, Paula Stachira, who is also queen of the grill. What a book, Jeff. What a book. Great interview with Paula. Yes, I did. I made just one of the recipes. There's a hundred of them. And you said you were going to make one a week. So I you know. have two years to complete the book. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yes, I have two years to complete the book, but it, but not two years to finish the interview with Paula. So everyone, enjoy the interview with Paula Stachira as we listen to her talk about Wing Crush and some other things. Our guest has a book. It's not just any book, but our guest has many things from doing research on her. She's beyond this book. We, we, we have her on to discuss a book, but she's going to talk a lot about a lot more, whether she knows it or not. <laughs> so I'm just going to read the back of her book, which everyone should get. We recommend, and, and we will go into depth Our guest is a barbecue enthusiast, recipe developer, and creator of the popular Instagram account, Queen of the Grill, which is beloved for its weekly Wing Crush Wednesday posts, or I should say hashtag Wing Crush Wednesday posts. She has partnered with Louisiana Grills, Tabasco, Pitmaster's Choice Pellets, Whiskey Bent Barbecue Supply, and many other brands. She lives in Toronto, Canada. If you haven't guessed by now, our guest is Paula Stachira, and 
she is not only an author, she's a podcast host. So Paula, without further ado, which Jeff loves that, we welcome you to our humble podcast, Baseball and BBQ. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on and and I can't wait to see what our conversations lead to other than my book. See? Well, I tell you what, you already got an extra, an, another TikTok follower and another Instagram follower out of me. Yes. So uh, <laughs> looking through your uh, book and, and looking at your recipes, I mean, they're, they're amazing. A hundred and hundred epic recipes for your grill or smoker, but just chicken wings. That's correct. I, I love chicken wings. Doesn't I, everybody love chicken uh, wings? Yes. I mean, but I, I haven't gotten to the expert part yet. So, you know, you're the expert. So why a book on just chicken wings? Well, I started Wing Crush Wednesday. Every Wednesday, I came up with different recipes. I tried to make some crazy out-of-the-box, like stuffed wings, dipped in cereal, just trying to do different things and motivate others to kind of think outside of the box and try different things, not, you know... I love buffalo wings, but just more than buffalo and Cajun and barbecue. And so it kind of rolled from there. And I saw a lot of people starting to do that. And then I was like, okay, now I'm being motivated to even step up my game because now everybody else is doing that. So it was a ton of fun. And then when Page Street reached out to me, we were kind of discussing what type of book to do. So we went through different ideas. And then eventually Caitlin said, why don't we do a wing book? You do Wing Crush Wednesday, so it only makes sense. And we started discussing how many recipes I would start with, and we were going to do 60. So I said, okay. They said, well, write up kind of like three recipes, strongest recipes you can come up with, and then we'll go from there. We'll test them. And then based on them testing it, they said, can you do 100 instead? So I was like, of course, I could probably do more than that, but let's just stick to 100. (laughs) So that's kind of the back end of the story. That's why we decided to do the wing book, just because they saw how popular it was on social media. And they they saw that most people were doing it every Wednesday, tagging me, reposting what I was doing. So it just it became really popular. You know, Paul, it's because I guess we're kind of late to the party with with your book it's been out for a little while although mm-hmm. you're going to see we're like the Oprah Winfrey of barbecue books so your book is just going to skyrocket again in sales <laughs> but so i happen to be able to hear you do other interviews when i get emails from page street publishing it is spam <laughs> <laughs> but but you <laughs> You had a situation where you thought it was and it wasn't. Could you please tell us that story? Absolutely. So I I typically, I'm not really the type of person that constantly checks my spam. I just, just kind of out of sight, out of mind. So I rarely go into that space because I just get so many messages that it's, it's hard for me to even go through those. So one day I just decided to go through, I think somebody left a message on my actual post saying, check your spam, which was a completely different person. So I went into there and then I happened to see Caitlin's message and I said, well, obviously this is spam. You know, that doesn't even make sense that someone's contacting me to write a book because I was fairly new to Instagram and, you know, I didn't think that I was well, well known and kind of, I guess, good enough to write a book. So I said, well, let me, let me just message this person back and see if it's real. So 
long behold, I found out it was a real company. I did my research and then I even told her and she just started laughing. I'm like, I'm sorry. I, it took me a week to even respond. I'm like, do I still have a deal or a shot at this book? So, yeah. So now I actually check my spam daily. <laughs> Before we get into to the recipes, I'm looking at these pictures. I got to compliment your photographer. This was this is unbelievable. They look so delicious right on the page. Thank you. Um, I'm actually the photographer. <laughs> um, yes, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you, you know, I, I, I knew that, but I just wanted. To... <laughs> I, but, I figured. <laughs> but but you know, it's funny, Paula, because we've had on many authors, barbecue authors, the books, you know, and and a lot of them use Ken Goodman to yes. do their photography. Right? We had him as a guest, and he talked about how when he photographs food it has to be authentic if if he's taking a picture of pancakes with syrup it has to be real syrup it's not going to mm -hmm. be odor oil you know like they yes use okay and and he'll talk about like if a steak is supposed to be cooked to a certain temperature he insists that it's to that temperature because it actually has a look to it now yes. your pictures are beautiful i mean if i looked at your pictures I I think they're professionals, which I guess now they are because you're getting paid for that you put them in. But Jeff's right; these pictures are incredible. I I, I mean, I hope Ken Goodman's not going to be upset, but um, they definitely rival his, his some of his pictures. So that's a that's wow. pretty uh, pretty nice company to be in, I would say. Yeah, it's yeah. Wow, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I actually wanted him to to shoot my book and he happened not to be available. So I asked Page Street if they could recommend other photographers and Caitlin said, why don't you do it? And I said, no, 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 no. That is too much pressure. I'm writing a hundred recipes. Plus I have to shoot the book myself. I'm like, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can handle it. And she's like, do me a favor, take 20 photos, send them to us. And then we'll go from there. And I was like, okay. And I, I was like, I don't want to do this. And I was just, I, I wasn't really even trying when I was doing the photos and I sent it to them. And they're like, the people that take care of like the photography, like the, the editing and stuff of the photos, they were like, um, you're actually better than some photographers we know. So yeah, you're <laughs> shooting your own book. We're not even going to recommend anyone. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> okay. And I got to tell you, I really appreciate, before getting into the recipes, you have a, a chapter here, Wings 101. And I, I recommend everybody read that before going into the recipes, because you really do go into the anatomy of, of the wing, what each part is, how to cut it, which, you know, it, for, for someone who's not an expert at it, this is really helpful. And you even stuff, stuff uh, chicken wings. So that, it's, it's really great, great <laughs> information there. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, I got stuffed on chicken wings that's <laughs> that's very similar same thing um yes. so we actually one of the things that i love to do is is when we get these books is to actually make some of the recipes before the the authors come on and in your case i did that my my wife and i did that and the results are incredible so you've got 100 recipes the goal is to make one new recipe from the book a week I think that's realistic. One a week. So now I've got two years <laughs> recipes to make. So this is. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> yes. But, but we made sticky teriyaki 
Oh, oh nice. Oh, yeah. Wow. But I'm sorry. What did you say? Nice. Those yeah. are, yeah. Those are delicious. We did not have ranch dressing, which was a suggestion of yours. So I want to just say we, my wife came up with this. She, she took a sweet chili sauce and mayonnaise. Oh, mix that together. That was a nice sauce on it, but it, I mean, it doesn't need a sauce. It doesn't need a sauce. You know, what we did was we took the extra sauce, the, the wings are cooked. So when you put them in the bowl, and you put the sauce over them and you you stir them up, you have extra sauce. We made rice and we put the extra sauce on top of the rice. That sauce is good. I didn't want to waste any of it. <laughs> That's a great idea to mix it in with rice. Yeah. I like that. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you and, and is some of these recipes can be used on cauliflower, you know, you if like for vegetarians. Even they can use some of these recipes on other things. And wings themselves, you can use other chicken parts. I was thinking thighs would be would would have worked as well. Doesn't have to be wings, but maybe, you know, I, I know it's a wings book, but I'm just saying you could use it on other things. Do you agree? Absolutely. And I've had a lot of people tell me that and they've They've used my sauce and seasoning recipes on other parts of chicken. I had someone do chicken legs with actually the teriyaki. They fell in love with the sauce when they made wings originally. So they did another recipe with chicken legs. A lot of people have been telling me I use it on chicken breast. Really, you can even use some of them on salmon, like Korean barbecue, the gochujang ones, even the teriyaki. They they go great on salmon, even shrimp. So you can adapt it to a lot of different proteins. For sure. So tell us, how do you go through the process of, you know, coming up with a recipe? I mean, these are incredible. You know, you have Big Mac stuff, stuff, ramen crusted, uh, Asian sting. I mean, how do you come through? (laughs) What's the process to come up with these these great recipes? I basically thought about all the different types of foods that I enjoy eating myself, the different types of cuisines, because I do enjoy eating a lot of different types of foods, cuisines, whether it's Italian, Indian, um, Chinese. So I thought of those things. And I I thought about the seasonings that go into it and the flavors. And I adapted that into my chicken wings. You know, I'm a huge uh, fan of ramen. So um, I've got ramen recipes where I made a sauce for the ramen. And I figured, let me try it on the chicken wings. And then I said, well, let me crust it in ramen. Let me, let me think about that. Because when I was in high school, I just used to get the ramen packs, crunch them up and just eat them like that. So I was like, let me try that on chicken wings. And then I put the sauce on top after and they, they were amazing. And I, I just did a show a few weeks ago and that was one of the ones they wanted me to demo and they tried it and they were like, wow, this is amazing. They never thought that, you know, you could do that and it would taste so well. It has a nice crisp to it. A lot of people question it because they're not cooked, but you're, you're grilling. So, and I, it takes about 45 minutes. I, I like to keep them on a little bit longer. I like to go 190 with my wings. So but yeah, I just try to I tried to think of all the different flavors I enjoyed and hopefully everybody else would have as well. You can't really overcook wings. I mean, I guess you could you could burn them, but yes. you know, it's kind of like chicken thighs. They you can really crisp them up and get them nice and it doesn't matter if you're at 165. I actually 
I actually prefer to take them beyond 165. Yes. The book is called Wing Crush, 100 Epic Recipes for Your Grill or Smoker. And I got to tell you, when I was looking at at the uh, chicken Parmesan wings and the pepperoni pizza wings, I'm going, wow, Len has (laughs) got to make that for me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jeff, 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 Jeff. Paula, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about your background. Now, I do know that you live in Canada and the connection, we have a lot of Canadian listeners, actually our music from our show, our beginning music and our end song that we we play all the time, Baseball Always Brings You Home, the two people that that wrote it and perform it are both from Canada and that's Dave Dresser and Shel Krakowski. There's some, you could kind of tell when you hear it because in the songs, there's a couple of references that people probably have no clue what it is. And I asked them about it one time and they said, oh, that's Canadian. You guys don't have that. So we have that connection, but you have a very interesting upbringing and how you came into barbecue. Could you tell us that? Absolutely. So it started very young for me. We took a lot of family camping trips and my parents always cooked over live fire when we went camping. So that always intrigued me, you know, seeing fire. And I would always go up to my dad and say, dad, how did you do that? Can you teach me? And he would be like, okay, but slowly don't burn yourself. So I learned from my dad and my parents just thought it was really cute that I was so interested at such a young age um, to cook. Whereas my sister wasn't really interested. She just wanted to run around the fire and throw things into it. That's how I basically got interested. And then as time went on, when we used used to have like family get togethers for holidays, I would say, well, let me take over the grilling. Let me do it. I'll do it. No worries. You just prepare everything and I'll do it. Basically, I started taking over that. And, you know, my family was just very surprised how much I loved it. And my mom said, well, at least I don't have to do it. (laughs) Or my dad said, at least I don't have to do it. I can just enjoy a beer. So kind of took off from there. And then as soon as, you know, I got older, moved into my new house, I bought my first barbecue, which was a Weber kettle, started with charcoal, and I just immediately fell in love. And then I I got a whole bunch of grills, pellet, I've got griddles and stuff like that. So yeah, that's basically how it started. (laughs) You hear that? I've got the charcoal, the pellets, the griddle. (laughs) It's almost like uh, the little mermaid. I've got Gizmos are plenty, I've got, you know, but I want more. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Paula, you're also a fellow podcaster. Yes. And I listened to your podcast called All Up in My Grills. And I understand that you and your partner, um, Lauren. Lauren, right. I listened to a couple episodes. I think you guys have great chemistry together. You're, you're kind of like the female version of myself and Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but it, yeah, it was, it was just terrific. There was one episode that I listened to. You talked about bagels. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we are, Jeff and I are in the bagel capital of the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you talked about Instagram and being authentic in posts and all that. And I really related to that. I, I thought that was just, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I recommend everybody go listen to that. It is 
It's all up in my grills. And the episode I'm talking about is season one, episode two. You, you talk about being authentic with Instagram posts and authentic with who you represent. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I think it's really important to be authentic because eventually people see through it. There's only so long you can have a facade where you know you're somebody you're not and I think it's also really important to create food that you actually enjoy because it it shows through your posts you can tell that you're enjoying something and you're not just putting something together for Instagram and so you don't I mean there's trends you can do a trend dish but I feel like it's nice to see people doing their own dishes and it's really nice to see people interact with others, responding to comments, because people take the time to comment on your post. So you want to kind of give back a little bit and say, you know, thank you so much for the comments or whatever it is. Responding to messages too, people take the time to do it. And, you know, I, I do it regardless who who's messaging me, even if I don't follow this individual. And I've had multiple people tell me, wow, I didn't even think you were going to respond to me. You're like, you made my day. And to me, I don't think that that's such a huge deal. I'm just responding to someone that took the time to, to message me. So I think that's really important to do that. Um, and just being true to yourself and who you're representing, because there's so many brands out there that I mean, I would say are a little bit sketchy. And, you know, if you're representing a brand like that, that just kind of shows your personality. Yeah, I don't know. There's just so many ways to show authenticity and try not to copy what others are doing. Try to make it your own. I see a lot of people trying to style a certain way that somebody else did it and, and they're struggling with it. Well, it's because it's not their own. I just feel like have fun with it. Don't put too much pressure on yourself when it comes to social media because authenticity comes through when you're just having fun and being yourself. On your Instagram page, I see you have over 40,000 followers. So I guess that would make you what we, I guess, an influencer. I mean, that's, that's, that's a kind of a new term in the, uh, in the social media world. I guess that's been around a little while now. But do you have anybody who you follow on social media in the barbecue world? Baseball and barbecue. yes I follow a lot of people in the barbecue world predominantly I think that's who I'm following I do follow other foodies photographers bloggers but mainly it's the barbecue world like Chris Sussman barbecue Buddha who has a book out as well he did with Page Street it's uh, the four fundamentals of smoking Um, and he's doing another one so I follow him Adam this Duke and Q he also did a book with Page Street and we constantly talk back and forth. We'll DM each other. There's a ton of barbecuers and, and I really look up to them and I've asked them for advice, especially writing the book. I messaged Chris and I was like, Chris, can you give me some advice? You know, I'm, I don't know what to expect because he did his book before mine. So, and everyone's so nice. They're so helpful. So I always appreciate it. And I'm the same way. If anyone asks me for anything, any suggestions or tips or tricks, I'm always willing to help. But yeah, there's a ton of people I follow. You know, all kidding aside, you talk about in the book, this book, it's a breath of fresh air. I love barbecue books. Plenty of them out there. They're great. And they all have their place. But you have something that isn't brisket, isn't ribs. Mm -hmm. Love those. But it's nice to have something 
it's a, it's a, it's refreshing, you know, it's uh, to have something a little different. It's nice that there's still some chance to put out something that hasn't been done before. I have not seen a book. I, I've seen a book of 25 wing recipes and 50 and even 99, but not 100. <laughs> but, but um, you so you talk about combinations in the book and things that go great together. Wings and baseball tailgating. Now, obviously, at a game, the hot dog seems to be the number one thing. But when when we when Jeff and I walk to City Field, let's say, and everyone's tailgating, what are they cooking? Wings, wings, and baseball. Perfect combination. Absolutely. Yeah. There. Yeah. I mean. Same thing with me. If I'm going to a game and I'm going to grab something to eat before the game, I'm grabbing wings. That's just, that's always been that way. Even, you know, years and years ago, being in high school and stuff like that. And for football too. I mean, I think any sport, it goes great with chicken wings. Doesn't matter time of year, season. I think they go great with really anything. (laughs) Yeah. You're flipping through the book and all the recipes have a couple of parts to it, I guess, as they, you know, to make the sauce and to make the rubs. And people can get intimidated. I just want everybody to know it. Don't get intimidated because it is really easy step-by-step instructions on how to make these, these chicken wings and the sauces. And it just it, it looks just so easy. So please make all of them. It, it just looks I, – I know I'm going to make maybe not 100, maybe 99 of them. But it's just <laughs> I, I, I can't – Oh, he's, he's an underachiever, Paul. <laughs> You know, come on, Jeff. But I want to ask you something off, off the wing book, because I did look at your TikTok, and I know you're not very, you're more on Instagram than TikTok, but I did look at one of your TikTok videos, and it was a Ritz cracker with peanut butter, half an Oreo cookie wrapped in bacon. <laughs> I, I, I personally, I don't know if I would try that. I, now I guess I would, but how did that taste, and how did you come up with that? I did a recipe in 2020 yes 2020 on august 20th i think that was national bacon lovers day so i did bacon wrapped oreos that's how that started just bacon wrapped oreos and that recipe blew up it just blew up i didn't think it was it was going to but it blew up everybody was making them for over a year like still to this day people make this recipe i was like yeah how do i top that and then one day when I was on TikTok, I mean, I'm not posting a lot on TikTok just because I've been so busy with media for my book. And mm-hmm. so I've just been focusing on Instagram. It's hard to do so much media. Sure, sure. Um, so I was on TikTok and I saw that for 24 hours, Ritz crackers and Oreo partnered up to do the Oreo with the cream and a Ritz cracker with the peanut butter together. So, and it sold out in like an hour, like it was gone in an hour. So I was like, well, let me wrap it in bacon. So I got Ritz crackers, I got peanut butter, <laughs> I got Oreos, took them apart, wrapped them, smoked them. And they were actually pretty good. I've had a few people try the recipe, but the OG is still the popular one, which is just the bacon wrapped Oreos. Yeah. People make that for football all the time, all the uh-huh. time. Yeah. Well, are you, a, when it comes to wings, are you a hot buffalo style wing person or what's what's your go-to wing? I'm a Cajun fan. I love Cajun wings, but I also love buff, 
Buffalo. So those are two. So like, if I'm out with a friend, I'm like, can you get Buffalo? I'm going to get Cajun and then we'll like share. (laughs) So those are typically the two I stick to. Now your mom's recipe, is that your mom's recipe? Yes. (laughs) Very simple, but it's so good. Uh She loves that sauce. She uses it on chicken legs for what was it? Whatever the last holiday was, my mom made chicken legs and she did that recipe. There's just something about it. She, she just uses an enormous amount of garlic and garlic powder and a lot of salt. And she lets it sit in that for a while. And then once you put the barbecue sauce on it, it's just got such a great flavor. Now I mentioned before that you, on your podcast, you guys were talking about breakfast foods actually. And you mentioned bagels. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what's your go-to bagel? My go-to bagel is a sesame seed bagel, extra toasted. So it has to be crispy, mm-hmm. cream cheese, and a thick tomato. The tomato has to be thick. <laughs> we laugh about this all the time, but it has to be a thick tomato. Thick tomato. Now, yeah. right, no locks, no capers, no onions, just the cream and plain cream cheese? Just plain cream cheese, yes. Thick tomato. Yes. I get it. Thin tomato, it's kind of, they break up and a, a thick, I love tomatoes, so I could I could see that. Yeah, yeah you got to taste the tomato. You have to taste it. The thin meat's just, it's like it's not even on there. Now, do you like it as a sandwich or half and half? I, I do it open-faced. Open-faced. Okay. Yes. Now, did I also hear, is it you or Lauren who loves pickles? We both love pickles. We we share love for a lot of things, and pickles is a big one. <laughs> okay. What's your favorite type of pickle? Extra garlic dill pickles. Oh, uh. <laughs> that is, Jeff, mm-hmm. That I that's a good one. And wait, I'm still on the food thing. I heard a, a rumor that you love chips. Is that correct? Yes. Your favorite, <laughs> what's your favorite chip? Uh, ruffles sour cream. Uh, yeah, ruffles have ridges. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> used to be a commercial. Ruffles have ridges. <laughs> they do. They're extra crispy because of the ridges. Now, will you make a recipe using the uh, potato chips? Mm. I would absolutely love to do the sour cream. I haven't done those yet. I've done flaming hot Cheetos. Oh. That's actually one of the recipes in my book, but I've yet to do the sour cream, but absolutely I will. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Getting back to the book, and you have a a chapter on the grilling techniques and cooking, and you you mentioned the pellet grill, the the big green egg, the trigger, Weber kettle grill, uh, Weber Smoky Mountain, and and oven baking, which is obviously gas or or electric, I guess. But outside, I mean, a lot of our listeners have just the gas grill. you can do this on a great gas grill as well, correct? Absolutely. You can, you can adapt it to any grill. The temperatures are going to be pretty much simple, except on the gas grill, the knobs are either low, low, medium, medium, right. low, or high. So you can kind of gauge the temperature with, with that. Um, I would think 350 is kind of medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always use a thermometer to check the, uh, the heat. Of the yeah, wind. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Paula, what's the best way to get the wings crisp? I mean, really crisp. There's a few ways. My favorite way is to use a little bit of cornstarch. A teaspoon goes a long way to add in when you're seasoning them. But 
before you even do that, you absolutely have to pat them dry with a paper towel and, and get any excess moisture out of those wings because they're just going to steam if you don't. They're going to stay wet. Um, so that's important. You can also put them on a wire rack, keep them in your fridge overnight so the skin dries out. So that helps as well. But I typically just pat them dry with a paper towel and some cornstarch. Let's, let's talk. I want, I'm going to go back and forth the book, the podcast. I'm very interested in the podcast in, in you and Lauren. How did you guys meet? And what do you love about doing the podcast? And what do you envision the future of it? Uh, we met on social media. We met on Instagram. Somebody, t- she was doing a giveaway. And this was 2019, I believe. She was doing a giveaway and someone tagged me in her giveaway. So I went over to her page and I just started following her. She ended up following me back and we just started liking each other's posts and then commenting and we would watch each other's stories. And she has a dog and I have dogs too. So we had that in common. I said, oh my goodness, your dog's so cute. So it started with that. And then eventually we just started talking more and more on DM and then we got pretty close just off of Instagram. And she says to me, she's like, you know, we should, we should think about doing something together. And I was like, okay. So we did a few videos together. I don't know if you've seen them. We've, we've had some reels together where we're, we're both, I'm like passing something to her. She's passing it to me. So we kind of started there and we just realized we had a great chemistry to work together. And we just had a lot in common, kind of same values, same views, on life, Lauren's like, we should do a podcast together. And I was like, okay, let's do it. So kind of started from there. And we just, we talked about how we wanted the podcast to be and the type of topics. And then we started kind of seeing a shift on Instagram where people were buying followers and just doing things that we didn't believe in and other people were talking about. And there was all this stuff going on. So we said, well, we should kind of talk about those type of topics just so people know that it's not just them saying it. Let's put it out there to the world. So those other people realize that, hey, people are watching you, you know, you do what you want, but just just so you know. And so we would talk weekly, decide on topics, say what's trending now, what should we talk about, what have you seen? And we've kind of paused it for a little bit just because of my book and I've been doing a lot of media tours and it's been a little hectic for me and for her as well she moved from Chicago to Phoenix so it was a little bit um, but we're going to get started back up in a little bit as well probably in the next month or so but definitely we want to do this long term and you know hopefully it just keeps growing and growing and we can get a lot of different types of guests on, not just grillers. We've had some just bloggers on there, food bloggers, but um, we're definitely looking to do this long-term. And we even talked about branding things, maybe doing some products, long-term goals. Yeah. And it's it's your retirement uh, fund, right? Because it's making so much money. (laughs) (laughs) Did she just invite us on her to be guests on her podcast jeff absolutely uh, there you go <laughs> love to have you on we, we can talk bagels and chicken wings all right and we could bring the ratings down that would be good no. <laughs> well, paul how is the tour going this book was published when was it published april 26 okay so just a few months ago so how is the tour going well, it, uh, it's still in infancy got a long way to go yeah, it's been going great. I I 
So as far as I know, I just did my last segment this past Tuesday. I did two segments in one day. I've done about, I would say close to 20 medias, 20 media channels. A lot of them have been remote just because of COVID. Number one, number two, I couldn't be in so many places at once, even in Canada, like I couldn't be in Calgary and Vancouver from one day to the next. So there was a lot of in my backyard doing that. So it's been great. Uh, I honestly did not expect it. I thought I was going to do one or two and that was the end of it. And there's just been a few rolling in and out. I've done some podcasts as well, but the media has been great. It's been amazing. I've learned a lot from it. And every time I've done one, I learned from it. And I think I've gotten better and better, you know, doing your first one, you're so nervous, you're afraid to stutter and, Mm -hmm. you know, forget what your book is called. (laughs) 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 What? I don't even know. So yeah, it's, it's been great. And I, I'm so grateful. And the team at Page Street have been incredible, so helpful. And they, they've been working really hard at this. So it's been great. The book is called Wing Crush, 100 Epic Recipes for Your Griller or Smoker. And your, a couple of your, your recipes has been featured on uh, Rachel Ray's magazine. Yes. I've had three recipes featured on Rachel Ray's magazine Instagram page. And the managing executive editor of the magazine actually started following me after that. And her and I kept in touch and we talked and she actually endorsed on the back of my book, Tara. Uh, And we kind of talked about maybe trying to get me to do something with Rachel Ray, whether it's in the magazine or on her show. So I know they were on a hiatus in the summertime. I think they just started filming. So I'm not sure if that's going to work out, but I'm not really well known to go on Rachel Ray. So I think, you know, you have to be a certain, nah, you know, Uh, we'll change that. That's for sure. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) So I definitely, you know, you're getting a lot of press because this is really an exceptional book. You didn't just throw wing recipes at the refrigerator and see what sticks. Everyone in this book has a different flavor profile. I mean, it's just, and and you could do, uh, there's some crazy recipes, but yet I want to try them. Mm-hmm. Like everything but the bagel. You know, that's, that's who would have thought of that? French toast wings. So good. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> just, oh, this is, this is one I really want to try strawberry cheesecake wings oh that big mac style stuffed i mean those are it's a hundred recipes and i mean you've got sriracha honey wings flaming hot dill cajun buffalo well len there's one i can't pronounce so i'm going to help ask paul to help me pronounce it is it go chu chang is that uh, go that- <laughs> I got that Go right. Chujang. Yes. Chujang. It's a Korean, it's a Korean spice, right? And I, I love Korean food. So yes, definitely gonna try this. Yeah. I mean, really, Paula, I, I I know the 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 accolades you've been receiving. They're well deserved. They really are. I mean, you put your heart and soul into this. I, I like to say, or we like to say that you know, the authors do the heavy lifting, and the easy part is getting the book. You did a lot of heavy lifting on this book, and it's just it's worth it. Came out with just this is something to be really proud of. And I I, I know I'm saying something that you've probably heard a thousand times already, 
It's it's phenomenal. And I'm just glad that I have it because this weekend, well, here, let me show you. These are just a quick, these are, these are, this is on the wish list. So my wife went to Buffalo, Buffalo University. And so she just, it seems like if you go to Buffalo, you have to love wings. That seems to be the thing. Cause you know, Buffalo is the home of the wing, right? And so she went through and just, I want this, I want this, I want this. Even the the wing you have to begin with, the the Buffalo wing, the first, I think it's your first, it's a must-have classic, best ever Buffalo. Well, we'll be the judge of that, Paula. (laughs) Okay, if it's not, you're coming back on and we'll we'll let you have it. (laughs) Don't say it's best ever if it's not, (laughs) but I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Looking forward to it. Well, Paul, we want to thank you for coming on Baseball and BBQ. Again, the book is called Wing Crush, 100 Epic Recipes for Your Grill or Smoker by the creator of Queen of the Grill. Right? That's what you note on on Instagram. Why don't you plug uh, your Instagram and any other social media you have, if you have a web page, just as well. Queen of the Grill on Instagram, Queen of the Grill on TikTok. That's it for now. Um, and thank you so much for having me on. And truly, I, I appreciate the kind words. It's hard for me to think that way of myself. I still don't. And I still, you know, have days where I'm like, I don't know if this book is doing that well. So I really appreciate it. It's really nice to hear. Thank well, you. We should tell everybody, please go to you. You know, if you can't, if you can't get it at your local bookstore, we really want you to support your local bookstore. But if you can, Amazon is the place to get, get the book. Get a couple. You know, give it to your friends, give it to your family. It's it's really, really great and easy recipes to, to make for wings. So please do that. Thank you, Paula, for being with us on Baseball and BBQ. Thank you, Paula, the queen of the grill. I can understand why she is the queen of the grill. We we really appreciate it. The, the recipes are great. The book is terrific. It's with barbecue books, the same thing. The same thing as baseball books. Just when you think there can't be anything different, there is. Jeff, this show, by the way, is brought to you by Bet Online, where the game starts. But you know what, Jeff? This is not the start. It is the end. What does baseball always do? Well, it always brings you home. But who brings you home? <laughs> we are so out of whack on this one. It is the poet, Shel Krakowski. The musician Dave Dresser. They are our neighbors to the north, our Canadian neighbors, just like Paula Stachira. As we said in the interview, hope everyone caught that. They have the great song, Baseball Always Brings You Home. I hate to say goodbye, but we have to. So listen to the song, and we will be with you on episode 154.
Oh, <laughs> 